0: Well, good morning. You know, I think a number of people probably did, like uh, Andy said, choose to stay home with the weather. My wife tells me that when I wear a uh, striped shirt or checkered shirt, it makes a moray. It does weird things on the video. And I said to her, well, it doesn't do it in person. (laughs) Good morning to you. You know, I, I just can't continue without... Just acknowledging that our dear friend and brother and former pastor, Walt Barrett, is home with the Lord. He was my friend, my pastor, a mentor, somebody I love deeply, but... Um, he is safely home with the Lord. He finished the race and he finished well. And we'll get out this afternoon uh, this, a link to the service information. And it'll even be live streamed. It'll be in Indianapolis on Friday at noon. But it will be streamed as well. If you knew, Wald, if you're interested in viewing that, uh, you can do so. Well, um, I don't know what life was like growing up for many of you. Maybe you were born into a family in which you felt certain expectations, like expectations for how you were to behave or what you were to become. I grew up as a PK. Some of you know what that is, a preacher's kid. And believe me, there were, I, people looked and expected different things from me as a little boy. I certainly couldn't get away with throwing spitballs or playing pranks on my classmates because they all knew that this is a pastor's kid. And so I felt these expectations. Imagine if you were born into the British royal family. Think about the expectations that would be placed on you then. Of course, we learned this week that Queen Elizabeth II passed away Um, I'll miss her because I think for over 70 years, she just conducted herself with dignity and poise. She was like a rock for that family. Not so much with some of the younger generations. They've got a really high bar to live up to. Well, here's a picture of (laughs) Prince Louis. And this was at the, this was at the 70 year Uh, Event for Queen Elizabeth. And just earlier this year in in February, it was called the Platinum Jubilee. And as the event went on, his behavior just seemed to get worse and worse. (laughs) Poor Kate Middleton there. And little Louie was gonna have nothing to do with any correction from his mom. Well, a parenting class starts Tuesday. (laughs) And... uh, I'm going to send Catherine a little note and tell her it's not too late. You can zoom in. The time change, it'll be okay. But there's great expectations. Maybe you would think, you know, I'm glad I wasn't born into a family like that where I'm in the public eye. Or maybe you would say, I would like to have been born into a royal family because, you know, it might be expectations, but all of the perks that come along with that, well, if you're a Christian, you were born into a royal family. You are born into the family of the king of kings. And along with that, God our Father has certain expectations of us. And so this morning as we continue our series called Absolute Certainty, it's a study of the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We're going to be looking at absolute certainty, Of our new calling. And as we get into it. The text will be 1 John 2. Verses 7-14. through And we're going to see two expectations. That we love one another. And secondly. That we learn and grow. This is something that God requires of us. As as members of his family. So I want to just read through the first section first. And then we'll start working our way through it. Beginning in verse 7 of 1 John chapter 2. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have heard since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded him. So the first expectation that I want to look at is is the expectation to love one another. In these verses 7 through 11. And they start out with what almost seems like a contradiction. John writes in verse 7, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one. And then he says in verse 8, yet I am writing you a new command. So I guess my first question, and probably yours too, is which is it? Is it an old command? Is it a new command? Well, we're going to see that it's actually both. And it's almost a play of words that he's using here. It's not a new command in the sense of time. It's been around for more than 1,400 years at the time. Now it's been 3,400 years. But it is new in the sense of essence or quality. And I'm going to show you how that's so. We can experience this new command, this command to love in a whole new way. So you could say it's not recent, but it's fresh. And notice he doesn't name this new commandment in verses 7 and 8. You have to go down to verse 10 where it says, where you can see that this new commandment is to love. And specifically, to love our fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, don't get tripped up by the fact there's a lot of male language in here. Brother, father. You know, this was just the norm back then. But it refers to brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, same thing. So... When do you think God first gave the command to love your neighbor as yourself? You might think maybe Jesus. He certainly said that, but it's much, much older than that. You have to go all the way back to the Book of Leviticus, more than fourteen hundred years before Christ. And in Leviticus nineteen eighteen, God says, "Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself." I am the Lord. That's 1,400 plus years BC. It's a very old command. And then when a Pharisee asked Jesus in Matthew 22, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. He said, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All the law and the prophets. There's 613 commandments in the Old Testament. And they can be summarized into 10. We know them as the 10 commandments. But Jesus summarized them even further. He said, love the Lord your God. That summarizes the first four. And then he said, love your neighbor as yourself. That's commandments 5 through 10. So he summed them up. Now, this is nothing new. Just like John said in verse 7, dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one which you have heard from the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet, Jesus said this in John 13, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. So what's new about this 1,400-year-old, now 3,400-year-old commandment? Well, first of all, the example that we have in Jesus is brand new. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Jesus was a very embodiment of love. He was love incarnate, love wrapped in flesh and blood. If you want to see, if you want to know what love looks like, look at Jesus. He modeled it. He came down into our world to model love for us. He didn't just model it theologically, he modeled it practically. We saw what love looks like. We saw what love does. He's a perfect example of love. And so how did he love? Well, first of all, he loved unconditionally. He never showed hatred or malice for people, even as awful as they were. And in his righteousness, he didn't hate them He loved them nonetheless. He reached out to tax collectors, adulterers, prostitutes. These were the lowest of the low in the Hebrew community. And yet Jesus reached out to them in love. Think about his own disciples. There were so many times that they must have hurt him. They were selfish and they ignorantly denied him many times. One of them even betrayed him, but he loved him. He still loved him. He loved them unconditionally. Even the enemies that crucified him, surely he didn't love them, did he? He did. So driving the nails in him, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He loved them unconditionally. He also loved them humbly You can't get a better example than on the evening of the Last Supper, the night in which he was betrayed, as we call it. He gets down and he washes his disciples' feet. And he says this, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example for you that you should do as I have done. It's an example. We didn't have this before. This is an example of humility. And he also loved sacrificially. He gave his life. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends, even for his enemies. So Jesus loved others unconditionally. He loved them humbly. He loved them sacrificially. Nobody had ever seen love like this before. It was brand new. The commandment wasn't new But Jesus' example was brand new. We had God himself come down and show us what love looks like. And so this is why John can write in verse 8, Yet I am writing you a new command. Look what it says next. Its truth is seen in him, in Jesus, in his example, and you. Now, not only is the example new, but the motivation to love is all new. In the Old Testament, love was required by the law. The New Testament, love is a response to God's love for us. 1 John 4, 19, we'll get there later this year. It says, we love because he first loved us. That's our motivation. There's a big difference between doing things out of law and doing things out of love. Do you send in your tax return each year because you love the government? Do you put little heart stickers all over your 1040? Like little lipstick kiss on that thing and you send it in with a great big check. You just love the government. No, you do it because it's the law, right? There's a big difference between doing it out of love and doing it out of the law. Imagine if we had laws here at Riverside like this. By decree of the elders, you must invite someone to your home for a meal twice a month. No choice. You have to do it. You must pay a percentage of your income to the benevolence fund for those in our church who are in need. You must serve in two ministries weekly. You must attend the prayer gathering before the service at least twice a month. It was a small group this morning. We can do a lot better there. I think we need a law. (laughs) Or more love. You must spend a minimum of one hour per week praying for others in your church. This is the law. Imagine that. Now if that really were the law. I think we'd have more people participating in these things. I'm pretty sure we would. But they wouldn't be doing it out of love. They'd be doing it out of fear of punishment. Whatever the repercussions are for not doing it. See that was the motivation in the Old Testament. Not in the New Testament. We love because he first loved us. So John writes That the truth of this new command is not only seen in him, Jesus, but in you and me as believers. Look back at verse 5, which we covered last week. It says, if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. When we obey God's word, his love is on display in us. So that when they look at us, they see the love of Jesus. Jesus. We become a reflection of him. They see his character on display in our lives. So his love is also in us, in working through us. Now verse 8 says, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And darkness isn't fully passed away yet. God's not stupid. He knows what's going on out there and he knows what's going on right here. It's passing away though. He says the light has dawned. Matthew 4.16. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. It's just starting. It's not fully there yet. It hasn't driven out all the darkness. But it's dawn. And the people it's dawned on include you and me. Second Corinthians 4, six: For God is. Who said, Let light shine out of the darkness, has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? He made his love to shine in our hearts. So his love, his light has dawned in a dark world and it's dawned in us. It hadn't driven out all the darkness yet, but it's getting brighter and brighter. As his love takes hold and his light takes hold in us. See, when you love like Jesus, you shine the light of Jesus in a world of darkness. And people will notice that. They'll see him. So now look at verses 9 and 10. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there's nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brothers in the darkness and walks around in darkness, he does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. Now, I noted before that throughout the Bible, light is a metaphor to speak of righteousness and purity. And darkness speaks of evil and sin. And in back in chapter one, we saw God is light. There is in no darkness in him at all. But here in the letter of 1 John, it says again and again, it talks about walking in the light, walking in the light, even living in the light. And so when it talks about walking in the light, it's referring to living in obedience to the word of God. And walking in the darkness is living in disobedience to the word of God. A person can be saved and still walk in darkness. He can still be disobedient to the word of God, I assure you. I can be disobedient to the word of God, even though I'm saved. Now we saw, it it breaks our fellowship with God. It doesn't break our relationship. We don't stop becoming his child, but sin clouds our relationship. And so we have to confess that, and he will forgive us. So here in verse 9, it says, Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. This is not saying that if anyone hates his brother, he cannot possibly be saved. That's not what it's saying. Brother here refers to fellow believer. It's saying that if a believer hates his brother, he's not living in obedience to God. He's walking in darkness and his fellowship with God and with others will be hindered. Now, don't go away thinking, oh, good. Paul said, I can go on hating that idiot brother. Mine is still be saved. Hallelujah. Well, that's darkness. That's not loving a person like God loved. That's not unconditional love. It's not humble. It's not sacrificial love for that person. It's selfish. So, I heard about a Christian man who said to his pastor, you know, there's just way too many people in the church who don't love their brothers. And then he mutters under his voice, I hate people like that. (laughs) How does that go together? Now, you need to love people like that. We need to love them. Loving our brothers and sisters in Christ is a real test because it's even harder, I think, than loving some people in the world because we expect more out of a believer, don't we? We expect more. You're a child of God. You got the spirit of God. How could you do that? I'll forgive that pagan, but I'm not going to forgive you. It's harder. And it hurts deep, more deeply, I believe. Because we just feel like they should know better. And they should. Yet Jesus endured hurts from his own disciples, from his closest friends, again and again. There was a young mother who hurt her seven-year-old son screaming in the other room and she ran in there and his little two-year-old sister had a handful of his hair and was pulling and so the mother loosened the little child's grip on a boy's hair and said to the little boy you know you're just gonna have to overlook that she doesn't know what it feels like to have hair pulled and then the mother went back to the kitchen and just a moment later she hears a little two-year-old girl screaming And she runs back in there, what's going on now? He says, she knows what it feels like now. (laughs) Little boy, he was going to show her. He was going to get even, right? That's our nature. That's what we want to do. We don't want to overlook an offense, especially from a brother or sister, but we have to. Love requires it of us. Now, you might say, well, it's one thing for Jesus to love people. He was a righteous son of God. He was born sinless. How can I love people like that? Simple. To love others, we have to draw upon God's love through fellowship with him. We can't drum this up on our own. We need God's love. Romans 5.5, 5, God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. He doesn't sprinkle it on. He doesn't scoop it out. He like takes a whole thing and pours it out into our hearts. It's available to us. And then the fruits of the Spirit, love. It's the first one. The Spirit of God produces that in us when we fellowship with him. When we walk closely with him, he gives us the capacity to love. He pours his love in our hearts, but we still have to choose to love. We have to. It's got to be an act of our own will. But God gives us the ability. We have to make that choice. Now, keep in mind, this doesn't mean that you have to like every brother and sister in Christ We don't have to have warm feelings of affection for them. We don't have to go hang out with them on Friday nights and Saturdays. That's not what it's saying. We don't have to spend that kind of time. We don't have to like them, but we do have to love them. We have to love them like Christ loved them. Unconditionally, humbly, sacrificially. And that's a choice that we make. Are your brothers and sisters in your life who you're not loving, think about it. Maybe think of one and just put it in the center of your mind. A brother or a sister who you have not been loving the way Christ loves. And what do we do with that? We have to confess it. Remember what it means to confess? To say the same thing as. To think and to talk like God would. To say the same thing. To bring our thoughts in alignment with his. So let's practice. Put this person in the center of your mind. And I'm going to practice, you know, saying the same thing as God. God, this person is a wretched sinner and deserves death. (laughs) How's that for a start? It's true. That's what God says. But I can't stop there. But God, you love him. You love him so much that you gave your life for him, and you forgave him, and you placed your spirit in him, and he's your child, and you call me to love him too. You call me to love him sacrificially and unconditionally, and I haven't been doing that, God. Forgive me, Lord. Wash the sin away from my life. Change my heart, and help me love this person out of the overflow of your love for me. In Jesus' name, Amen. That's confession. When we start thinking like that, it's harder to act hatefully toward a brother or sister in Christ. We have to confess. We have to say the same thing as God. So the first new calling here is to love one another. The next one is to learn and to grow. Let's read verses 12 through 14. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one." Now these verses can seem really confusing, even repetitious, and the translation into English doesn't help, but we're going to sort that out. Beginning in verse 12, it says, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Now the dear children reference here, it is different than the dear children in verse 13. I know it's confusing. They both say dear children in the NIV. Yours might say something else, but I bet it says the same thing. And they're not the same thing. They're two different words that have been translated the same. But the dear children in verse 12 is the word technion. And what it's referring to is all of those who have been saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. It's referring to children of God the emphasis is on the relationship with the parent in this case the father it's the same word that John uses in in verse one my dear children I write to you so that you will not sin he's not saying that they're literally his offspring and he's not saying these are a bunch of little kids he's teaching Sunday school no he's saying my dear children those who are children of God in other words they're young in their faith Not in their age necessarily. So look again at verse 12. I write to you dear children because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. That's a description of salvation. Ones whose sins have been forgiven. You know what? We can hear that so many times. Your sins have been forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven. That we can really start to become almost numb to it. And not really get. Just how significant that is. We can lose sight of it. Think about where we would be in our sin apart from faith in Christ. And now they're forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. We just don't ever want to take that for granted. And it says, notice how, on account of his name. On account of his name? Well, his name refers to his reputation, his renown. It's all that he is. It's all that he has done. That is his name. Remember our key verse? I write these things to you who believe in what? The name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. First John 5, 13. The name. So when you believe in the name, you're believing in who he is, his reputation, what he's done. That he came in human flesh and that he gave his life. He died. He rose again from the dead. That's what you're believing. So it's those then who are God's children. It's not uncommon today to hear people say of the whole human race, well, we're all God's children It's even a slogan of the Human Rights Campaign, or HRC. If you don't know the organization, it's the largest LGBT advocacy group in the country. And it's an attempt to appeal to people of faith. They say, we're all God's children. Well, it's just not true. It's a nice notion, but it's wrong, we're not. We're only his children when we enter into a relationship with him by his grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ. Only then does he become our heavenly father. And we become his child. John 1.12. Yet to all who received him. To those who believed in what? His name. He gives the right to become children of God. To those who received him. Galatians 3.26 says the same thing. You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, HRC, but those who have faith in Christ are the children of God. And as children, we have this beautiful relationship with their father. We also have an inheritance. An inheritance. In a word, our inheritance is heaven. Eternally in the presence of God. In a place of unimaginable bliss. Where this sinful world and our own sin nature is behind us. But not everyone's in this camp. In fact, most aren't. Most are not in this camp. Most are on what the Bible describes as the broad road that leads to destruction. That's a good reminder for me, too. (laughs) By God's grace, it didn't go off, but I forgot to silence it this morning. Most are not in that camp. Do you know what God calls those who do not have faith in Jesus Christ? It's not children of God. It's children of the devil. That's right out of scripture. I put the two verses there. You can look it up. He calls them children of the devil. There's only two groups. He makes it real clear. I said it last week, you know, the saints and the aints. (laughs) Children of God, children of the devil. There's no in between. We are not all God's children. We're all God's creation But we're not all God's children. Not all people have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, if that offends you to say that those people are children of the devil, well, I'm sorry. You're probably in the wrong camp if that offends you. But here's the thing. God desires that all people have a relationship with him. That all people be his child. You see that in 1 Timothy 2.4 and 2 Peter 3.9. It's a desire that all should be saved and brought into this relationship as children. So verse 12 is addressing all believers. And then in verse 13 and 14, where it talks about fathers and young men and children, here's the key to understanding this. It's not referring to different ages or parental status. It's referring to different stages of spiritual maturity. That's what this verse is talking about. And there's many parallels between physical age and spiritual age, physical maturity and spiritual maturity. And so here he addresses them as fathers, young men and children. And let me just take them in reverse order. It makes more sense, I think, to start with small children. Again, sometimes John doesn't follow my outline. But we're going to start with small children and then go to young men and then finally fathers, okay? So look at the end of verse 13. I write to you, here it is again, dear children, because you have known the father. Now this word for dear children is different. It's paideon. Look, I didn't study Greek. Um, It's paideon. And this has an emphasis. It still means child, but it has an emphasis on them just being unschooled, or ignorant, uninstructed. It's not an emphasis on the relationship, it's on their immaturity. And so it speaks of an infant, and it's a metaphor for someone who is young in the Lord. Now infants might not understand much, but you know what? They recognize their father I think it's cool when a little baby just a few months old and daddy comes in and holds that baby and the little baby's face lights up. I just love that. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the father. But they don't understand so many other things about life. In the same way, very young believers, they don't have a deep theological understanding. They're not going to be able to break down eschatology or soteriology or ecclesiology or all those big, crazy Christianese words. They're not going to know that. But they have a simple, beautiful faith. They're like the blind man that Jesus healed. The Jews started plying him with all these theological questions about who he was. And the blind man, he replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. I have no clue. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. And it was that man that did it. See, he had a beautiful, simple faith. He was a brand new believer in the Lord. I heard about a young activist school teacher who told all of the little kids in her class that she's an atheist And then she said, how many of you are atheists too? And not wanting to be left out, not even understanding what it meant. All the hands went up like little fireworks in the room. All but one little girl, Lucy. She didn't raise her hand. And so the teacher asked her why she decided to be different than everybody else. And she said, because I'm not an atheist. Well, then the teacher asked, well, what are you? She said, I am a Christian And the teacher was a little miffed at this point, and her face turned a little red. And so she asked Lucy why she was a Christian. And Lucy said, because I was brought up knowing and loving Jesus. My mom is a Christian, my daddy's a Christian, and so am I, a Christian. And so now the teacher's angry. And so she says loudly, well, what if your mom was a moron and your dad was a moron? What would you be then? And Lucy paused, and then she smiled, and she said, then I'd be an atheist. (laughs) She had a beautiful, simple faith. And that woman was not going to tear it down. There's something really beautiful about a young faith, whether it's in a young child or in an adult. It doesn't matter if you're 8 or you're 80. When you come to know the Lord, you're a babe in Christ. And it's beautiful. In a healthy church, there should be new birth, new spiritual birth going on all the time. It should be like a maternity ward. And when a baby, when a person is born new into Christ, there's an excitement. Amen? Everything is new and fresh. It's like when a new little baby is born into the world. My grandson, just over a year ago, now the ladies in the church kept asking me, Oh, in a squeaky voice. Are you excited? Are you excited? You know, He's going to be born. And I said, well, I mean, I'm looking forward to it <laughs> when he's born. Oh, but once he was born, I had no idea how exciting it would be. I had forgotten what a joy it was. Everything looked different. Man, there were new sounds in the house. There were new smells. <laughs> Not all of them bad. All oh, that smell of that baby shampoo on that little baby's hair. Oh, it was so exciting and refreshing. I just absolutely loved it. Well, a church with new believers is just as exciting. And the whole church should get behind, get behind helping those new believers grow. You can't expect them to grow overnight. It's not going to happen. It takes time and it takes nourishment. And so listen to what 1 Peter 2, 2 says. Like newborn babes crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. I love that. Crave milk. If there's one thing for certain about my grandson, that boy loves his milk. I mean, and my daughter has one of those little bottle warmer things. It's a little white thing. I call it his Keurig. And, and once he hears that his Keurig is going, he knows it's coming and he just can't wait. I think the reason there's a formula shortage is because my grandson loves milk. <laughs> he loves his milk, but that's what he's supposed to do. And that milk is making that little baby grow. And now look at him. He's just turned one and he's already driving. <laughs> I wish he'd slow down a little bit. But this is the whole point. I just I just love that picture of him on that. That car actually, we have a picture of my daughter in that car 28 years ago. And that car's still down there in Texas. And now here's her grandson, another generation, a little baby. I just love it. Well, in a similar similar way, new believers need pure spiritual milk. First and second Peter, again, like newborn. Babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Pure spiritual milk, what does that look like? Well, it's the word of God. It's the word of God that nourishes us. There's no substitute for it. You want to grow up, you got to have the word of God. You need to Be in the word regularly. It's got to be a steady diet. And you got to be in attendance in church, sitting under the teaching of the word of God. Get involved in a small group like we heard of the men this morning, where you can study the word of God, where you can fellowship over the word of God, where you can pray about it together and where you can grow. I love the simple faith of a new believer. And we all start there. But regardless of our physical age, we're babes in Christ and God calls us to grow, to learn and to grow in our faith. So let's look at this next group then in verse 13. It says, I write to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. Then look down at the middle of verse 14. It reads, I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you've overcome the evil one. Well, this is a spiritual adolescent, someone who's known the Lord for a while now, and through nourishment with the word, they've grown strong. Young people, young adults are strong and they have a lot of energy, more so than maybe some who are older in the Lord, but they're enthusiastic and they're strong. But notice the key component that makes him strong. It says, the word of God lives in you. That's the key. Wouldn't that be a beautiful compliment if someone said to you, you are strong and the word of God lives in you. What a beautiful thing to say. Now a strong Christian is one who's been taken in the word of God, feasting on it. And now he knows the word of God. He knows it. It's not just, yeah, I read the Bible once, been there, done that, but I'm reading it and I'm digging in and I'm searching out. I'm searching for wisdom and understanding. The word of God lives in you. It's alive and active, shaping your thoughts, driving your actions. That's what we need. It lives in you. So, one of my favorite psalms is Psalm 1 and I'll read you the first three verses. Blessed is a man Or woman, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, the word of God. And it says, and on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. That's a definition of a strong person. Soaking up. Here it's not milk, it's water. Soaking up the word of God. To be a strong believer, you have to be disciplined. You got to be like an athlete. Athletes are committed. They're disciplined. They'll often sacrifice time with friends and other pursuits so that they can train and become stronger. My son Nathan gets up really early in the morning, several times a week, to ride his bike at the crack of dawn. And he'll ride 30, 40, 50, even 60 miles in a morning. And then on other days, he goes to the gym. And he works out because he wants to get stronger. He's disciplined. He's committed to getting stronger. But one of the things I appreciate about Nathan the most is that even with this pursuit of physical strength, he doesn't let it displace his training and his pursuit of spiritual strength. He's even more devoted to reading the word of God and studying and serving. And he's growing stronger physically, but even greater joy. He's growing stronger spiritually. And he's only 20 years old, but he's teaching younger believers in fusion. He's in the Sunday school this morning, so I can talk about him. (laughs) He's teaching back there. He's teaching younger believers. A few weeks ago, he stretched his wings And he taught all of us as part of the student-led service. And I don't know about you, but I learned some things. And I was challenged. And I grew from that young man's message. Now, some people don't make it to this stage. They get stuck in the infant stage. Listen to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. It says, in fact, by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. Goes on to say he can't discern good and evil. He's immature. I was going to put up a picture of like a a grown man drinking a bottle, but it was just too disturbing. (laughs) But some people get stuck in the infant stage. And again, if you're, an, if you're an older person, if you're older when you come to Christ, praise God. You're a babe in Christ, but go on to grow. Go on to grow up and become a strong adolescent in the Lord. That's what God calls us to do, to learn and to grow. Otherwise, he says we're going to be ineffective and unproductive in our knowledge of the Lord. So, adolescents, And then finally in this section, we have fathers. In the beginning of verse 13, I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. And then it's repeated word for word in verse 14. It's repeated for emphasis, I believe. Fathers are those who've not only grown strong and and mature in the Lord, but they've been battle tested. And they've endured. They've, They've gone through a lot of stuff. And they're still walking closely with the Lord. And now they're discipling others and leading others to Christ and helping them grow in the Lord. Let me read you uh, the words of, of the great Victorian preacher Charles Spurgeon. I love, this man could just like, I don't know, I feel like such an idiot when I read this man. He was brilliant and he was gifted by God. But he says, fathers are persons of maturity, men who are not raw and green, not fresh recruits, unaccustomed to march or fight but old legionnaires who have used their swords on others and are themselves scarred with wounds received in conflict. These men know what they know, for they have thought over the gospel, studied it, considered it, and having so considered it, have embraced it with full intensity of conviction. These can discern between things that differ and are not deceived by the philosophies which allure the ignorant." They know the voice of the shepherd and a stranger they will not follow. Fathers, spiritual fathers. This would be the goal of every believer, all of us. We shouldn't be satisfied to just play with toy soldiers. We shouldn't be. We should grow up in our faith, pursuing spiritual growth earnestly with great diligence The Apostle Paul states the goal this way. To reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We should be soldiers. We should be teaching and discipling infants in Christ, young men. That's our goal. And if we're not there yet, we have growing to do. I have growing to do got to get into the word of God we got to take it seriously we got to be disciplined we got to have a plan and go for it because God this is not a suggestion that we learn and grow it's a commandment you can be absolutely certain of that God commands you and me to love each other and it commands us to grow it's not an elective If you're not growing, it's not too late to start. Start now. Start today. Make a plan. Maybe you were growing and then you just kind of stagnated. Get back on track. Take it seriously. I love that 20 men have signed up for the leadership development class. They want to grow spiritually. They want to take off the diapers and put on an apron and serve. They want to put on the armor and fight for the truth. I love that. They're serious about going to the next level in their spiritual growth. We need to wrap it up. First, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, and you're a child of God, and you're born into a royal family, and you can't overlook the fact you have brothers and sisters in Christ, you're not saved into isolation. You're saved into a family. And we're called to love one another. We got these these commandments that we are to love one another and we're to learn and to grow. You can be absolutely certain again that these are commandments, expectations of the Lord for you, for me. And we have a new example in Christ. He showed us clearly what love looks like. He loved unconditionally, loved humbly as he served others. He loved sacrificially as he gave not only of his time and his treasure, he gave of his life, his blood for you and for me. We love because he first loved us. He gives us that new motivation. It's not the law. It's his love that motivates us. And he gives us the power to love others. But we have to choose to put it into practice. When we do, we're walking in the light. When we don't, we're choosing to walk in darkness instead. So we're called to walk in the light, which means obedience to God's word. Darkness, walking in darkness and be disobedient. So when you love like Jesus did, you're shining the light of Jesus into the dark world. All believers, regardless, new believers, regardless of their age, they begin as infants in the faith. But we're called to grow up and move on from young children to young men who are strong. To fathers who are tested and faithful and shepherding younger believers. That's our call. And missed one. Not everyone is a child of God. Only those who believe. So we've got to grow up. And the word of God is our nourishment. It's pure spiritual milk for those who are new in the faith. But it's also meat. It's protein for those who are mature in the faith. We never outgrow it. We never, I've had enough. I'm done with milk. I've graduated. That would be quite a crash diet, wouldn't it? We need that ongoing nourishment of the word of God. Well, the goal of all this is that we would reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the son of God. and Become mature. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's the goal. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, what a perfect example you are. You're light, and in you there's no darkness, and your love. And you shined your light into our darkness, into our dark lives, into our dark hearts, and you poured your love into our hearts, God. Lord, help us to love like you do. Help us to hunger for your word and to consume it. To not be satisfied with just what we know, but to want to learn more. Not just to get to know the word, but to get to know the author. To get to know you, God. I pray that through that you'd nourish and grow us. And that we would just enjoy, relish in this relationship that we have with you, God. That we grow strong. And then through us, you would do a mighty work. And God, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.